Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. I go ton for ton noting COVID. Any man here? When I do, I expect the same dollar for the same work. You'd have this holler alive, son. You'd be doing good for yourself. <laughs> you won't be treated like men. You won't be treated fair. Well, you ain't men to that coal company. Your equipment, like a shovel, a gondola car, a hunk of wood brace. They use you until you wear out or you break down or you're buried under a slate fall and then they'll get a new one. And they don't care what color it is or where it comes from. It doesn't matter how much coal you can load or how long your family has lived on this land. If you stand alone, you're just so much to those people. You think this man is your enemy? Huh? This is a worker. Any union keeps this man out ain't a union. It's a goddamn club. Now they got you fighting white against colored, native against foreign, Holler against holler. When you know there ain't but two sides of this world. Them that work and them that don't. You work. They don't. That's all you got to know about the enemy. And those were scenes from the John Sayles coal mining struggle classic, Made One. And by way of introduction to some coverage this week on the show of the lead up to the Labor Day weekend across this country. First. What about the portrayal of the working class in movies? Specifically, how and when did characters on screen in the UK change from solely upper-class portrayals to the more realistic masses in movies? In this enlightening one-minute Marxist episode, veteran British actor Michael Caine explains his own role in shaking up the way things once were. Yeah, that was deliberate on my part. I, I'm, I'm very, I was always very uh, aware of the class in the class in you know system in England, and so I, when I became a success, I sort of shoved it down their throat and continued to talk like I did. Cockney is my natural dialect, Cockney. Yes, I mean this isn't it. This is just a general London accent. If I spoke Cockney, you wouldn't know what the hell I was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and it was to encourage other people from working-class backgrounds to say that they could do it, because it's very difficult to explain to an American a social system where you have to remember, uh, uh, when I grew up, every, every actor talked posh. All plays and movies were about middle-class or upper-class things. You know, it was all bunties having a party, let's go up to London, and everyone was in tennis shorts and rackets. Uh, and I, I came to a place where everybody would get beaten to death by gangsters, and there was crap everywhere, you know? <laughs> Uh, uh, and so it was, it was, you never thought of being an actor because you didn't, first of all, you didn't talk properly. Everybody said that to me. You know, you didn't talk properly. But I kept the accent in the hope that it would sort of break down a class barrier and say to young people like myself, um, you can do it. You don't have to be an actor. Anything you can do, it doesn't matter how you speak. And thank you, former Detroit Union rep of the United Auto Workers, and founder of the League of Revolutionary Black Workers, Darrell Wasteline Mitchell, the creator as well of the One Minute Marxist. And now on Arts Express, 
economic crisis cinema meets millennial generation misery in adopting Audrey, a last resort odyssey in which that character portrayed by actress Jenna Malone, about to be fired from her seventh low-wage job in two years and facing eviction as well, embarks on an adult adoption for herself for economic survival. First, some scenes from Adopting Audrey, and then we'll hear from Jenna Malone. Good evening, Mrs. Hicks. I'm calling about invoice number 137. There's a balance due of $365.17. We sent a copy in the envelope with your order. Did you receive your order? I do have your PO number right here. It's 137. I'm sorry to hear that, but I'm gonna have to report to my supervisor and let him know your intentions in regards to this past due invoice. Well, you have until the 13th, so enjoy your day. Wait, Mrs. Hicks? Can I ask you a question? How long have you lived in Denver? Really? Wow, that's a long time. Don't you ever feel like you just want to leave? You don't do good phone work. I disagree. Uh, that's what it says here. It says you're better not dealing directly with people. But that's not true. I'm really nice to people. I'm sure you are. I just don't have any... What else does it say? I'm terribly sorry, but... we're gonna have to let you go. Okay, cool. Got it. Thank you so much. You enjoy your day. You enjoy too. That. Hey. Hey. What's going on? Oh, just, uh, getting off of work. Hmm. You know it's the 7th, right? Got it. Yeah. I'm on it. Do you think that maybe you can, um, just turn it back on for tonight and I can literally come in tomorrow morning with a check? For you guys, or? Okay, all right, well, thank you. Thank you for your help. Hi, my name's Audrey, and I'm looking to be adopted. How'd your parents die, Audrey? My parents aren't dead. Then why are we adopting you? Hello, Jenna Malone, and welcome. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. And the last time we spoke, you were a mermaid. <laughs> I know. It's, it's nice, the shape-shifting aspect of being an actor, you know? 
What was it about adopting Audrey, this story, that drew you in? I think for me, I... Well, first of all, it's a character that I've never seen. That traditionally, I think, for whatever reason, films haven't given this type of character a voice. And so that was instantly intriguing to me. Um, but also this type of... Uh, someone who's so deeply self-reliant that oddly they've become their own island and it's sort of hard for them to relate and bring in people and receive the community care that they really need. Um, I felt that, it, that that story kind of spoke to a lot of our modern conundrum of how we've been taught a lot of, you know, that self-resilience or sort of die, um, DIY or death. Like, we have to just, you know, be, do everything ourselves. But really, what we needed was a little bit more allowance to invite in community care, you know, that maybe that's actually truly what we really needed um, whilst learning and harnessing self-reliance. But that's not a full operating system, you know, that that's kind of just half of the equation. And do you have any thoughts about the story taking place at this particular moment in time? with a character who has held seven jobs in two years, is facing eviction because she can't pay her rent, and when the film opens, she's being fired from one of those many jobs. And as a millennial, your generation has been hit especially hard economically. So any thoughts to share about that? Yeah, but yes, I think the question was, what what is important about making this film now, particularly when the sort of, entry economy, you know, like us, all of, all of the humans that are in their 20s and their 30s, um, yeah. we're inheriting such, uh, a, 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 you know, a waste field, really. I yeah. mean, it's all sort of decomposing and crumbling. Um, what happens to that person? Well, I think it's a good thing. Not good in the sense that it's going to be sunny and glorious. I think that it's sometimes really important to have things that have gone unquestioned um, become now something you must question. Because maybe the system that was given to us um, as, you know, you enter the workforce here and you do this job and you live or die at it is maybe not the only question that needs to be on the table, you know? And so in that, in that way, I think it's really radical. I think it's a really beautiful time to be figuring out your life. Yeah. Um, because it's, it's not as linear. It's not this or that. There's a thousand opportunities. Um, and I do love and appreciate this sort of the, you know, byproduct of grind culture and DIY culture, which is someone that does a thousand jobs and can do sort of anything and is okay in the float of life, you know, yeah. um, that can kind of live on the fringe of that question. And that's really an important place because in that discovery, maybe they'll find something that can change how we view going to work. I mean, I think that we're all asking ourselves those questions anyways. So I think it's oddly very well-timed. Now the film begins with the statement that, quote, a surprising amount of what follows is true. So what can you say about who or what is actually true in this story? Um, all of it. All of it has residue of, of truth. You know, all of the characters um, have come from something. 
And did you meet any adult adoptive families or adults who have put themselves up for adoption in the real world to get into character? No, I didn't. Because, you know, Audrey's journey, even though that's sort of like the context of how we come to this story is adult adoption, it's not really about adult adoption. It's, it's, it was her first experience with it, and so I wanted to kind of just discover it as I went, you know. And did you draw anything from your own life to play Audrey? You, as someone who emancipated herself as well, a parental emancipation as a teenager. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that there's not... I, it would be illogical of me to play a character that didn't I didn't find resonance with. Because that's, that's your in, right? That's how you can invite that character into your space and your telling of it. Um, I definitely feel like not only is the sort of self-reliance um, versus community care question an important one, or conversation rather, um, but also, oh, other one, what, what was the question? And did you draw anything from your own life to play Audrey? Oh, right, but then also the, the journey as a parent, right? Yeah. Oh, right, that's what we were talking about. Um, so there's a self-reliance thing that I was really drawn to. And then also the the need for we don't we know we talk a lot about you know obviously children and parents you know that relationship but really that relationship is forever you know you have an adult relationship with your parents um, that doesn't kind of get as much attention and care and I don't know I feel like we still need our parents sort of regardless of the age that we are and so. I liked that idea of a woman who's sort of interested in re-examining that relationship in her life of wanting parents and what that means. I think that that's something that doesn't traditionally get talked about a lot, you know? Yeah. For me, I've had a lot of, you know, like I had um, so many adults in my life that were basically like godparents to me that really, you know, that and have continued to do that, that work. Um, it's so important for me as an adult and yeah. as much as it was when I was a teenager to have an adult support system that I could lean on and rely on, you know, and that didn't always follow the traditional route of like, you know, we have the same blood and the same genes. Um, it was, it was when it was the most meaningful, sometimes it was the non-traditional route of just people that you really want in your life. And with your other recent works, what can you say about portraying David Bowie's first wife, Angie Bowie, in Stardust? In my other recent works, what can I say about portraying... About portraying David Bowie's first wife, Angie Bowie, in Stardust? Oh, that, yeah, I only heard dust at the end. I was like, oof, I don't know what that means. <laughs> I loved it. I mean, what a wild ride. That was really cool, you know? Um... I love that film. I loved the experience of that. I think what's so interesting for me when I did this film, Audrey, that's what it was called when we were making the film. Oh, we're starting to get the, uh, the lawn mowers <laughs> and the, the leaf blowers. Might have to close my windows. Um, what's so interesting about the journey of that is that I had played, you know, Angie Bowie, I had worked on this film called Antebellum. Um, I had, you know, done Lorelei, and it felt like I was doing a lot of character work, you know, with, like, wigs and changes and different 
scenarios and and I felt like I was about to do Audrey and I called the director and I was like I think that the thing that I have not I've done the least and that maybe scares me the most is doing so little you know I don't want to hide behind a wig I don't want to hide behind the character I want to just sort of strip and be as naturalistic as I possibly could yeah. and so I think Audrey really changed um, the tone of it and the expression of it and how we Mike and I were able to kind of collaborate together to bring this character to life um, so it's cool because I don't think I would have been questioning that or wanting to do something like that unless I had done these previous films Hold on one second, I'm going to close my window. And what about being part of that quite overlooked, powerful film, Antebellum, and its focus on the legacy of race relations in this country? Which film? Antebellum. That was quite an overlooked, powerful film about the deplorable race history in this country. <gasps> there she is. Guess what? Daddy is going to get you dressed for school today. We are descendants of the gods. This land was always ours. But we must never relent. We're nowhere. And everywhere. You're from Virginia, right? I can tell. You're special. We are the future. You, you're not like the others. It was an odd time for that film to come out. I, I love, it's such a gamble making stories, you know, because it's not just about making something that's impactful, beautiful to you, and something that the audiences can get something from. But it's also about making films that speak to culturally, you know, what the phenomenon is then, right? Why do audiences, you know, respond to this film and not that film? And I think that, yeah, that one came out at a time that it was a hard time to be having that conversation, you know? Yeah. And what can you say about co-starring with Jodie Foster and Contact as her childhood version 
and that she said she built her character around imitating you. Um, it was, a, you know, I mean, so long ago. It was sort of, I mean, I, I love that film. That's like one of my favorite films I've ever done. It was such a special, every single moment was like a golden, delicious um, place for me to explore. And people were really like valued my opinion and treated me like an equal. And I felt like really inspired with the people I was working with and sort of honored. And I, it was just a really beautiful experience. Um, and still, you know, for me, that film is like number one. Like I am so, I'm just such a fanboy over it. Like I feel so honored to have gotten to be a part of it. And what about working with Jodie Foster? Jodie's incredible. You know, I mean, I, I'm lucky enough to have gotten to work with her in multiple ways um, as an actor, as a producer. Um, and, you know, I mean, she's one of the greats. It's, it's always incredible to get to work with people like that that you have respected and looked up to for so long. You know, she's, a, she's an incredible human. And any last word about adopting Audrey? Uh, just, and, you know, I know that independent film is just slowly coming back and people are wanting to go see the movies, but it's a really, it's a beautiful way to kind of support film culture is by just going out and watching tiny films on the weekends and catching that matinee. Um, I know it's something that I've missed a lot during the past, you know, two years of our collective um, experience. So, yeah, I just hope that people get to go and, and see it. I, I'm really proud of this film. Okay, thank you, Jenna Malone, for calling into the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. Bye. And Adopting Audrey is out now in release. And next on Arts Express, in our band online, broadcast on Arts Express episode this week, those Russian pranksters, Vovan and Lexis, are at it once again posing as Ukraine President Zelensky, phoning up this time eminent veteran British actor and gay activist Ian McKellen to invite him to the non-existent Bandera Gay Pride Festival in Kiev. And with McKellen unaware of gay controversy in Ukraine and that the late Stepan Bandera is the Ukraine national hero worshipped in that country and who was a Nazi aligned with Adolf Hitler. Now I can see you very well. Thank you very much. Hello, Sir McKellen. Thank you for for this meeting. I'm also grateful for your support of Ukraine in such a difficult time for us. And I know you would like to discuss LGBT rights in our country. Well, I'm very glad to hear that. Uh, It's... uh... Uh, it's been a big part of my life. Uh, like you, I'm an actor, and mm-hmm. uh, to, to get involved in politics was uh, was strange for me, but uh, but necessary uh, w- when I felt that the laws of my country ought to be changed for the better. I know there are gay soldiers, aren't there, fighting uh, f- for your country, and and uh, their reward will be uh, your your enthusiasm to to help them when it's all over. Well. I feel like Frodo, who goes to homophobic murder Ukraine <laughs> to destroy it. 
I would love to come to England and have a drink with you at your bar, The Grapes. Ah, yes, thank you. I've just wanted to know what you felt an individual uh, in the United Kingdom could do for you. Is it, could we send money? Do we support our politicians? Uh, do we, what can we do? Mm -hmm. Is there anything you can suggest? I think that you can help us uh, if you will give us more money and you will join our um, our statement uh, that we have to take more money. And I think that what you could help is to send us people from England who will fight for us. And especially I think that we can uh, create a special gay item in our army. People who is fighting for freedom, who are gays, and I will uh, will care about them. And if you will send them, I, it will be really, really useful for us. But I can certainly send that message uh, to, to anyone who, who wants to listen to it. it no, I mean, I, I, you, I hope you... I mean, uh, especially gays. They will listen to you, so I think that you have a lot of soldier gays, and we will make a tolerant army in Ukraine, and it will be a great example for all LGBT world. Yes, thank you. Well, look, I, I've got two people who want to say hello to you. Oh, <laughs> ah, it's nice. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, yes, I, Tolkien, of course, it does seem, doesn't it, that you are Frodo. You know what I think has been the biggest impact uh, in my country on, on, on helping gay people is the acceptance of uh, marriage for gay people. And once that happens, uh, people suddenly discover that they have gay relatives. Oh, I think that um, I will allow gay marriage uh, soon. And I Good. think, that, yeah, and I think that children should change their gender as they want. This is very relevant in the West now. So this is what we are going to. Well, that's wonderful that you've got time when when you're fighting. Uh... Uh, a, a dreadful war to, to think about these things, but I suppose that keeps you positive and, and, and mm -hmm. optimistic about the future. Oh, I think that we ha we have to see uh, gay-friendly Ukraine in future. It's my pleasure. And I also want to hold the Gay Bandera Festival in Kiev. You know who is. Oh, well, that would be fun. I would, well, please. And can I come to that? I would of love course. to. Of course. You will lead it. You will lead this festival. <laughs> so I will open Thank it you, with man. you. And I will make a kiss to you in the beginning of it. To show Thank that, that I am close yeah. to gays too. That would be wonderful. And, and, and what a contrast with, with, with Moscow, where, where the gay pride is illegal now for 100 yeah. years. Oh, I mean, I think that we will have, have a war and we will win. And I, in our plans, we will liberate Moscow soon. I hope that we will uh, uh, cap, that, cap that them and we will make Moscow LGBT friendly and we will dancing on the Red Square with you. I hope that you will come and open a gay pirate uh, in uh, Moscow soon on Red Square. 
<laughs> well, look, uh, I, I, before we go, I want I want to give you a present, uh, long distance. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. I, I don't know if you if 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 you, if you recognize this. Mm. Um, the, 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 this is um, Gandalf's uh, glamdering sword that, that I mm. used in, in the film, and uh, it would be my great honor to 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 give it to you. It's not a real sword, mm -hmm. uh, it's a symbol. Mm -hmm. uh, and if I can come to uh, uh, Kiev and, and 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 present it to you uh, mm. with my love, uh, it would yeah. be a great joy. Mm. So uh, can you tell uh, um, you will not pass? You shall not pass. Yes, okay. <laughs> Say. You shall not pass. Mm. Mm. It's funny. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and say, say, you shall not pass Vavan and Lexus. It's my friends. They will love it. Say, you shall not pass Vavan and Lexus. Tell me the names again. Vavan and Lexus. You shall not pass Vavan and Alexa. Lexus. Does that do? Yeah, it's good. No, I mean, uh, this idea was suggested to me by the mayor of Kiev, Vitaly Klitschko. Uh, and he is a famous boxer, but he hides his orientation. Also, everyone already knows that he is gay. How, how to make Vitaly finally have to uh, have uh, the courage and to admit that he is a gay? He is a mayor of Kiev. He asked me to yeah. ask you. You can tell him, Klitschko... Open up that you are gay. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. Say this. Klitschko. Vitaly. I am. I, I, I am. I am with him for his own sake. You can be selfish. The, when you come out and you're honest, you feel better about yourself and your whole life changes. Your relationships change with your family, with your friends, with your colleagues. And with the world, Vitaly, uh, as your president says, open up and 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 be honest and feel better about the world, and the world will feel better about you. Right. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, it's great. It's great. Uh, you know, I'm also kind of gay because I'm being uh, a little bit by the whole Russian army right now. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you will uh, make a statement that you invite all gay soldiers to join our army and uh, that I already invited them. Maybe you can make such a statement. I will do, I, I will do my best. I will, I okay. will put it on to my... Uh, yeah. In this way, in this way we, sh we will show how uh, that we are a gay-friendly country and especially... Uh, you will show that gay should not be afraid, and uh, especially gay soldiers can come in our army, and it's legally it's legal now. Yes, I know that, and that's that's good. That's very good.
Hey, John Savage. If you're if you're listening to this right now, you're way ahead of everybody else in the world. This is Arts Express with Prairie Miller, and she's had the courage to give a call to me, uh, John Savage, and uh, I'm grateful to be a part of what I consider to be one of our most important radio programs and networks we have available in this country today. So hang in there. All right. go out now on Arts Express with a look at films about workers, old and new, as well as few and far in between. Because the notion of workers in Hollywood has usually meant those who work for the CIA, the military, mercenaries, SWAT operatives, or for organized crime, ironically promoting these dangerous entities as a determined indoctrination of the masses to accept the system as is, while disappearing those potentially truly dangerous, the working class as posing a real threat to the corrupt and exploitative system that exists, along with working class oppression when it is portrayed as instead usually originating as a personal, emotional, and psychological condition, and not political at all, of those working class characters. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. I hope you're enjoying your Labor Day weekend. And in preparation for this weekend, I thought it might be fun to watch and rewatch a bunch of labor-related films, in particular, those that highlight union or workplace struggles. Now, there are literally scores and scores of such films, so I arbitrarily eliminated from my choices documentaries and went for more fictionalized accounts, though often based on true events. Still, there are lots and lots of titles to choose from, from comedies to the deepest tragedies to feel-good epics of the struggle. And should you choose to spend your Labor Day relaxing in front of your screen, you'll have no trouble filling up your time. I am somewhat bleary-eyed from my home film fest, but I'm going to focus on a half dozen of the films that I most enjoyed. Now, let's start off with two heavy hitters, American films that both deal with coal miners. The Molly Maguires from 1970 and Meituan from 1987. And the Molly Maguires directed by Martin Ritt, who later went on to direct Sally Field in Norma Ray, takes place in the coal mines of Pennsylvania during the 1880s. While Meituan, directed and written by John Sayles, deals with the West Virginian coal wars of the 1920s. Both films are strongly naturalistic, and in both films you'll experience what it's like to be breathing foul air 14 or more hours a day beneath the ground with nothing but a candle lamp stuck on your mining hat lighting your way. Both films emphasize not only the courage it took to work under such conditions every day, but also 
the courage it took to defy the bosses who controlled not only the mines, but the head-cracking police and politicians as well. They were Irish. They were Catholic. They were rebels. I warn you now, God will judge last night's violence as a sin. There's no future for what you joined except hell. I want the organization. I want it smashed. I want the money requires. Paramount Pictures presents Richard Harris, John Connery, Samantha Egger in The Molly McGuire. And the Molly Maguires were a secret society of coal miners who sabotaged the mines in an effort to force better conditions. And while the story of the film certainly emphasizes the union building, it also strongly focuses on the life of a Pinkerton and former masquerading as a miner, played by Richard Harris, who attempts to gain the trust of Sean Connery's Black Jack Kehoe, the stern-faced leader of the Molly Maguires. But Richard Harris, as the informer, is so likable that you can't help hoping that he'll switch over as a double agent. However, the movie ends with no romantic illusions and lots of damage and death instigated by that informer. John Sayles' film, Maytuan, picks up that thread some 40 years later, albeit in West Virginia this time, and his depiction of life in the mines is as harrowing as in The Molly Maguires, it's as if no progress had been made in the intervening years. It were 19 and 20 in the southwest field and things was tough. The miners was trying to bring a union to West Virginia and the coal operators and their gun thugs was set on keeping them out. Them was hard people, the coal miners, then they wasn't nobody who wanted to cross. So push come to shove, and pretty soon we had us a war down there in Mango County, which in them days was known as Bloody Mango. And that's where it all come to a head, there on Tug Fork, in the town of Matewan. Matewan does add in a strong race and ethnicity factor. During the strikes, the coal companies bring in black and Italian scabs to work the mines to break the strike. But eventually the scabs are swayed to come over to the Union side. But even with that, the forces of the bosses are too strong for them. And the film ends on a particularly grim note as we see yet another new generation of workers condemned to their exploited lot in the mines. By the way, fans can take a look out for a little cameo by Malachi McCourt as a bartender in the Molly Maguires. Well, those two movies are not going to provide much uplift, but they are good lessons in the kinds of abuse that the miners had to endure and the way that the U.S. political, judicial, and economic systems take their revenge against workers at every turn. And this kind of historical overview, even when couched in somewhat fictional storylines, is valuable in understanding the length and breadth of workers' struggles. If you're not in the mood for slitting your wrists and you're looking for something more cheery, I'd recommend two somewhat newer British films, Made in Dagenham and Pride, where we fast forward into the labor world of the 20th century. 
Made in Dagenham is a 2010 film starring Sally Hawkins, and it recounts the 1964 strike against the Ford Motor Company in Dagenham, England, by the women of the plant. This needs a leader, someone to inspire the girls. Well, you can do this, and you should. Now we've got all this unrest at work. Unrest when you actually come out and strike. <laughs> This is about one thing, equal pay or nothing. <laughs> Everybody, out! Get the banner up. No, no, go! I know the feeling. Hey. Prime Minister, I don't think you appreciate the situation. We need to tread carefully. It's a freak. What's going on? This is being on strike. You run out of cash and you end up screaming at each other. The lead character, Rita O'Grady is played with much fire, humor, and appeal by Sally Hawkins. And the women, who were only a tiny fraction of the plant's employees, were hired by Ford to do sewing of the car seats and trim material. And Ford tried to reclassify them as unskilled workers, so the women went on strike. It isn't long, though, before the women realize that the issue isn't just about their skill classification, but more about the fact that they're women, and that was why they were getting much lower wages than others in the plant. Well, they take their fight all over England and even by example to the U.S., where they demand that Ford factories pay equal wages for equal work. Their actions eventually culminate in government intervention from the very top and eventually leads to Parliament passing the Equal Pay Act in 1970. The filmmaking and script is reminiscent of Martin Ritt's Norma Ray with its focus on a spunky working-class woman leading the strike. And Sally Hawkins is as exciting to watch as Sally Field was in Norma Ray, though Hawkins' character is more outspoken and sophisticated politically than Norma Ray is at the start. While most of the script is fairly predictable, what's particularly fun to watch in this film is the battle the women have with their hidebound so-called Marxist union leaders who keep urging the women to cool down their actions, which advice, fortunately, the women ignore. And if you're looking for another feel-good film with really great politics, I recommend the film Pride from 2014, directed by British director Matthew Warkis. It's an object lesson in how class movements and identity movements can work together to win victories. With the strike now entering its fourth month and in the face of unprecedented violence, the government today insisted that it will close 20 pits with the loss of over 20,000 jobs. Mining communities are being bullied just like we are. What they need is cash. Yeah, because the miners have always come to our aid, haven't they? It doesn't matter. It's the right thing to do. So we are going to pick a mining town completely at random for uh, Wales. gaggle of gays and lesbians has come out in favour of the miners' strike. We've been backed up by perverts. We've been through some of the same things you've been through. Look, we raised this money because we want to help you. Set in the mid-1980s, a group of young gay London activists, inspired by one of their communist members, decides to support a group of striking Welsh coal miners, both monetarily and then physically, 
But some of the miners have anti-gay prejudices, and it's not so clear that things will go smoothly, even when the gay activists point out that both groups get smashed on the head equally by the English coppers. In the end, they do work together, and each group makes substantial national legislative gains because of the support of the other one. Once again, there's a wonderfully appealing cast with Ben Schnetzer and Bill Nighy as the standouts. Now, so far, all the movies I've mentioned are squarely within the genre of filmic social realism, and all of them provide a you-are-there-now kind of immediacy that modern commercial filmmaking achieves so well. However, such films after a while can become formulaic and predictable no matter how competently produced and directed. Curiously, perhaps, two of the most effective and emotionally engaging films about labor I've watched recently choose to break the boundaries of realism and affect the viewer on another level more than just the rational mind and conscious emotive level. I'm speaking of two films that are on the opposite ends chronologically of the filmmaking spectrum. First, the 1925 silent movie Strike by the Soviet director Sergei Eisenstein, and then the much more recent 2018 movie by Boots Riley called Sorry to Bother You. Eisenstein's remarkable film Strike was one of his first films and was made before the language of film and film editing had become codified into more realistic modes. Eisenstein's story of striking workers under the Tsar in 1905 uses extensive montage and cross-cutting to create expressionistic and surreal images of the oppression of the working class under the Tsar, especially in a famous scene where the slaughter of the strikers is cross-cut with the slaughter of a cow being butchered. Eisenstein unashamedly drew much from the expressionistic and surrealistic live theater movements of the day, but used the unique techniques of film to tell his story in a similar non-realistic way. The results are images that linger in the subconscious long after viewing the film. As a bonus, I highly recommend that you watch the free version on YouTube, which has an incredible modern score by the Alloy Orchestra that is totally aligned with the film and is an immense plus. And then there's Boots Riley's Sorry to Bother You. Well, Sorry to Bother You moves away from the factory as the locus of oppressive labor to the office. Now, there's nothing new in that. Films like 9 to 5 from 1980 talked about women's oppression in an office environment, though I have to say that that film does not age particularly well, though at times funny, it doesn't really say anything at all about class or even women's solidarity beyond the actions of its three famous stars, Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin, and Dolly Parton. But anyway, Sorry to Bother You follows the fortunes of a black telemarketer who is just on the verge of hitting it big in the industry, but then gets embroiled in a strike started by his friends at the office, including his aspiring artist girlfriend. I just really need a job. 40 on two. This is telemarketing. Stick to the script. Hey, hello. Uh, Mr. Davidson, cash the screen here. Sorry to bother. Let me give you a tip. You want to make some money here? Use your white voice. My white voice? I'm never talking about Will Smith's wife. Like this young blood. Hey, Mr. Kramer. This is Langston from Regal View. 
You're going upstairs, Power Caller. They even have their own elevator. Welcome, Power Caller. I got promoted. I'm a Power Caller. What do they sell? They're not selling, but we selling. No, well, there's no amount of money that'll make me do that. Here's the starting salary. Well, man, I'm gonna have to get me some new suits. There's lots of good unconventional humor and satire in the first half of the film, involving making ends meet with little money, avant-garde artistic striving, torn loyalties, and the telemarketing company's greediness. But at about halfway through, the film starts to get a lot darker, and Boots Riley, the director, a self-avowed communist, breaks genre and follows the insane illogic of capitalist greed into a horrifically nightmarish conclusion. The first time I saw this film, it was so shocking that I felt the director had lost the movie in that last half hour. But on second viewing, perhaps because I knew what was to come, it made absolute sense to me, and I even detected some hope in that dystopian conclusion. It's a brilliantly risky film, and it's another film whose images will resonate with you long after you view the movie. So those are my picks for Labor Day weekend. The Molly Maguires, Matewan, Maiden Dagenham, Pride, Strike, and Sorry to Bother You, all of which you can find at an internet near you in your neighborhood. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. So we have time for it today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.